Welcome back to the Black and Raw podcast. I am your host, Tino Kolo Tondorai from Barbara. I ain't going to repeat that. Here is a podcast that's going to dialogue and the space for black men to be their most authentic selves. Now, my guest today is Darren Esong, and Darren works with Bridge Span Group, where he advises mission-driven organizations and philanthropic foundations in support of equity and justice. And he supports the firm with arts and cultural organization. He is also the host of Dreaming in Color, creating new narratives and leaderships which offers leaders of color space to share how they have leveraged their unique assets and abilities to embrace excellence, drive impact, and more fully define what success looks like. And Darren comes onto the podcast today to talk about racial equity in philanthropy. You know, a lot of these billionaires and people that are being philanthropic have maybe got their money through ill-gotten means or you know sometimes you've got to crack a few eggs you know to make some money and maybe they haven't done it in the most equitable of ways so we talk about how billionaires and you know how these organizations are giving money and how they are being um, equitable with what they give money to and you know we also talk about so many interesting things in this episode Darren went to Howard University for those that don't know what Howard University is it was a university that was set up by black people for black people and so we talk about his experiences at Howard he also went and studied in Paris Ouf Francais mm, Mademoiselle mm, French bread and croissants sorry for any French people that listen to this podcast I've just butchered <laughs> the impression of you. But we also talk about his experiences in France and what that was like being an American, being a black American in France. And there's loads of interesting things we talk about in this episode. You know, we touch on politics, we touch on multiculturalism within the UK, within Paris, within uh, the US, you know. We talk about creating social change and funding projects. And, you know, there's it's quite a nuanced conversation. And I know you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. So I want to just get into the meat of this. I just want y'all to be able to experience what y'all got to listen to in this episode. So, 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 here is my conversation with Darren Esau. Hi, Darren. Uh, so welcome to the Black and Raw podcast. It's really good to have you on. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. No, it's all right. It's all right. And so I just wanted to uh, sort of get into the meat of the episode um, with you. And you went to Howard University. And for those that are in the UK that are listening or forever actually listening, if you're not in the States, Howard is a is, is a black uni, was made by black people for black people. Um, and we don't have anything like that here. So what's it like attending a university which is specifically sort of made for us? No, it's a great question. Uh, and I think it's worth noting that, I mean, you guys don't have it because you don't have the same, you have your, you have your own oppression narrative. But you have the same <laughs> it's always an oppression narrative, right? I was in South Africa. It was always interesting. Visiting a place where the oppression narrative is different, right? Uh, so in the United States, basically, uh, of course, most Black Americans came to the U.S. Um, during the period of enslavement. And so we came as enslaved people. Um, and uh, depending on where you were in the country, um, you weren't, may not even been allowed to read. Uh, to learn how to read. Uh, and so for many, in many places, the idea of a, a proper education was forbidden, particularly in the South of the country, but also throughout the North as well. Um, and so um, 
that said, you weren't allowed to enter most institutions because of segregation uh, and all the other things. Uh, so when slavery ended in the 1860s, and there's a another story about blacks being educated before that period. My family's been in New Orleans since the 1790s, right? So wow. um, there was were educated during that time as well um, as they came up to New Orleans from Haiti during the Haitian Revolution. But for, during the 1860s, you had a huge group of black folks who were freed um, officially um, as part of the Civil War, then the Civil War and Emancipation Proclamation. And so there was a need to create universities for those people, like the schools and university, the whole university system. Interestingly enough, I mean, clearly folks were freed in 1865 and the universities were open. Clearly people were being educated before that point. You could just mm. walk straight off the plane into university. <laughs> right. Uh, and so there were schools and systems. So basically they created this whole thing and we call them historically black colleges and universities. So they were schools that were started to educate free people, the free people. They were part, Howard was started as part of the, the Freedmen's Bureau, which was a whole government agency set up to figure out what to do with black people once they were free mm. and to enter American society. Um, the others across the country were started as part of religious schools or religious institutions or public sector institutions, public schools across the South were segregated. So blacks couldn't attend the white school, but they had to have a black school for them. So they created a whole public education system for blacks across the South. And so that was Howard. So there's some actually 107 historical black colleges and we call them historical black wow. colleges because they were schools when Blacks were not allowed to attend white institutions. So we call historical black colleges. Then we have predominantly white institution PWIs um, that exist within the country itself. And many of us, like myself included, attended both. Right. Yeah. I went to Howard. Grad. I went to grad school in Paris uh, and then I went to uh, business school at CBS Columbia Business School, which is not just a PWI, but an Ivy League school in, in New York. Um, and so for me, what was interesting is that generationally, I was, I, I joked that I, my family's been in New Orleans now for nine generations. I'm seventh generation New Orleans native. I am the only generation that grew up in integrated schools. So before me, they were all segregated, literally. Mm. I mean, blacks could not go to schools with whites. Uh, and New Orleans was one of the few, well, not the, one of the few, but there were, what that meant is that there were a segregated school system. New Orleans had a whole, New Orleans had such a large population of wealthy blacks that no one's had a whole black prep school thing going on. They were no one's give their like black prep schools, elementary school and whatnot and so forth. And and then desegregation happened. My parents actually met desegregating at school in New Orleans. Um, they were from very different backgrounds. My dad came from a wealthier black family. They'd gone to all private schools, black private schools. Growing up, my mom had gone to the public black schools uh, and they met desegregating this high school in their neighborhood. They would have never met. They were from only eight blocks apart from each other. But wow, they, that's kind of crazy, neighbor. isn't it? <laughs> All I have to say, I grew up in majority white schools. So I was mm. I was in a majority black city, but I went to all those schools that were perfectly integrated. Uh, we had we used to sing Beatles songs and hold hands and love each other. And I mean, I was like hippy dippy. They were really trying hard. <laughs> At some point and realized that like I'd always been one of maybe four or five black kids and mm. a school of white and this in us in a class of white kids. And so I really wanted to go to I wanted to be in an environment where I, I'd grown up in a black home in a black community, but I'd never really been educated in a black environment. So of my class of 120, 120 kids total in my graduating high school class, there were maybe 15 of us that were black. This is an 80% black city. Makes no sense. Um, and, and of the 15 of us, I think 10 of us went to historical black colleges. Okay. Howard Spellman. Uh, so you arrive at this campus, you've never been around as many black people before in your life. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shock to the system. Right. Like, um, and so you're there for the black experience, but that you're also there surrounded by mostly wealthy black kids who've never been surrounded by this many black people before in their lives either. Right. Wow. So it was That's interesting. Professors are black. The administrators are black. We used to joke on Howard's campus. Even the squirrels were black. 
We didn't have brown squirrels. We had black squirrels. And, <laughs> and so it's a very, I mean, it's a very inclusive environment. It's a, you know, it's a super, I mean, I, I, it was the only time, the first time in my life where I didn't have to think about being black. Clearly I was black. Everyone was black, but I could have freer conversations because I was in a room with people who were part of your community. And so you could have more nuanced conversations, right? When, when affirmative action comes up in a room full of white people, you know exactly what your your talking points are, right? Like you, there's no deviation. You say this, you say that, right? But you can have more nuanced conversations when you're surrounded by allies and you're surrounded by your community. Uh, and it was just a great time to be at Howard. Tanisi Coates, uh, the writer, was a few years ahead of me. Um, and then um, we also had Chadwick Bozeman, was a few years after me. So wow, like, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, Circle Black College is just magical place. It's like you've pulled the best of Black America in many ways. We invested, you know, Howard for undergrad, and then you, we joke there's the, the Howard Harvard situation. We used to go to, go to Howard for undergrad, go to Black College for undergrad, and then you go to an Ivy League school for grad school, <laughs> and balance off um, the experience. Uh, but it was four years of peace. I joked that nothing else. It was four years of not being bothered with white people which was mm-hmm. a really wonderful experience. Well, three years, I did my, my junior year abroad in Paris, uh, which is a different experience. But yeah, so that was Howard for me. It was a wonderful experience. And, and I encourage everyone, if they can, to attend a historical black college. It's very freeing, very liberating. It's great to be in a place where your intelligence, your prominence, all of your things is understood. It's mm-hmm. understood. You don't it. Yeah, definitely. No, that, that sounds really, that sounds quite good, actually, quite interesting. Um, especially as you were saying, you grew up in, um, well, you grew up in a black neighborhood, but your school was somehow didn't have, didn't represent that. Um, and that then you were able to go to Howard and that you had everybody, you know, that was just like you. And you were saying the conversations you had were more nuanced. And even the fact that I, um, I sort of had a similar, up, well, my upbringing, I was surrounded by quite a lot of white people. Um, and so, and then my university that I went to, um, was in Stoke, which is even more whiter. So yeah, I'm still surrounded by white people. Um, but what it was interesting and what, I always say that I would always love to try and experience different lives. Like if I had multiple lives, cause I went to a school where I think there was only one black lecturer and I literally like, and he was great. I loved him. I think I loved him more because he was black because some people are like, Oh, he doesn't get through all the content. He sort of just rambles. I'm like, no guys, he's good. He's good. He's just passionate. <laughs> and I think, that definitely probably came out of a sort of a protection point of like, oh wait, no, I need to, I need to protect this guy because he's the only one that I see that's like that, um, that's like me. So no, I think that there's you know there's something powerful. I mean, within the black school experiment environment, I think was you know something I'm really thankful for growing up. Yeah, I grew up in a black home. I grew up in a black neighborhood. Uh, I was mostly a black city at the time, but I've always been in very white circles, uh, just in general, educationally, professionally, and otherwise. But I, I do think my parents did an amazing job of normalizing blackness uh, and different forms of blackness, right? And so I grew up in a state where, you know, that there were just black people doing all the things, right? Like anything, I, I joke even at Howard, there was one point I was visiting a friend who was on a college campus uh, at a dorm. And from one, well, I was walking into the hallway, walking into the dorm area. And then like in from one dorm room, there was the Fuji's blasting, right? And from the other dorm room, there was the cranberries, right? And it was hilarious because in that spit, like cranberries, like super, <laughs> not, not necessarily the blackest of music. Okay. <laughs> wasn't myself generationally there, right? Fuji's, of course, um, uh, Lauren Hill became part of the Fuji's and whatnot and so forth. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. it was part of the Fuji's before she broke out. 
But like in that moment, it was like I was like Lauren Hill in the Fugees. I thought of it as being black music, but the Cranberries not so much. But it's like in that point, I learned that if you're doing it as a black person, it's a black thing, mm. right? And so just the fact that you're doing it makes it a black thing. And so what was interesting is that I realized how forgiving to some degree and inclusive the de- definition of blackness is. At Howard, you had black professors. There were black professors who were walking out. German studies. I have friends with German studies majors. Like, black people study German? You have a whole German studies department. I guess so, right? Um, and so I think that it, it normalized blackness in a way that gave me so many different options. I didn't feel like I had to fit into a very narrow definition of blackness. And that was wonderful because ultimately, at the end of the day, my grandmother used to always say that what um, God's greatest gift to man was that of free will. Uh, and our gift back to man, back to God was living our lives as beautifully as possible exercising that free will. And so with that, that meant that we should have options on how we live our lives. And we should feel as if how we're living our life is life is an authentic way to be who we are. Right. And so I think that that was great about Howard. He gave me the space to recognize that blackness came in so many different forms, so many different areas, so many different regions. And the culture wasn't the culture is a very forgiving and inclusive one, not one that was narrow. Yeah, no, that I I mean, that just sounds that just sounds really cool, to be honest with you. And like, that's something which I try and do, which you're trying to do with Black and Raw is that you can you can be black and you can still love all the things that you love. Um, And it's great that there's institutions which sort of are just demonstrating that, but not demonstrating it through like, oh, no, we're going to force it down you. But just like just come and just do just be you just do what you come and do. And so you said you went to go and study in Paris, um, which I imagine was definitely a completely different experience. What, What was that like? No, it was a different experience. And so I'd grown up in New Orleans. So New Orleans, I joke all the time growing up when I studied in France and then I actually ended up going back to France for grad school. I did a Fulbright in Paris and studied at Sciences Po there. And I'd be in these classes of students and the French would love talking about, oh, America, products of Anglo-Saxon culture and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm from New Orleans. Like my region was colonized by the French and the Spanish. I don't necessarily <laughs> know it's this Anglo-Saxon culture that you're talking about. Okay, whatever, right? And so, I mean, my family's in, from New Orleans. They came to New Orleans from another hey, um, French colony at the time. It was Saint Domingue. Saint Domingue became Haiti after the revolution. Um, our family came to New Orleans um, during the Haitian Revolution. So, what, we don't talk about the fact that you know, there were two waves of migrants from Earth, uh, where white landowners who were kicked off the island, and then um, and they came to New Orleans because New Orleans was a French colony at the time, so it was friendly territory. And then five mm-hmm. years later, the black Free people of color in Haiti who helped uh, kick out the white people were kicked out if they were landowning, right? And so we landed in New Orleans as well. So it's a uh, not <laughs> friendly arrival, right? Yeah, um, kind of. So <laughs> yeah, I always had a French connection. You know, historically within the city itself, New Orleans spoke French until my great grandparents' generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was there's definitely a French you know speaking culture. You grew up with a normalization of French culture is once again being accessible. Like there's mm-hmm. a big joke. And Black American culture, anyone with, not always, but Michelle, Denise, Nicole, Ivani, that they're probably a Black girl, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> things are very normalized in French culture, and that's because of New Orleans. France was this French city that had a very prominent uh, Black middle class that had French things. So France was always, it's always accessible for Black Americans, mm-hmm. you because know, it's like, it's a place that we can go. It's understood to be a place that we can return to, to some degree. And so I'd always wanted to study in France. Uh, I went for my junior year abroad. It was a wonderful experience. I joke all the time, once again, that in France was the first time I felt like an American. If that, how silly that may sound. <laughs> Interesting. In the States, I was Black. Uh, and there was a definite culture associated with Black American culture. It was a, a cultural identity I was very proud of. Um, um, it, was, it was a beautiful culture. 
in France, I was American. And the fact that I was black was an accessory, right? Like I was, I was, I was American first. My passport yeah. was them. Um, and so I experienced the privilege of being an American. And for the first time in my life. Well, right? like, imagine <laughs> not in America, but in France. Not in America, but in France, right? <laughs> like you get to France and people assume that you're wealthy. People assume that you're educated. There's a certain degree of space you're allowed to have, allowed to take up, places you're allowed to be in. And so it was a very freeing experience. At the same time, I also recognized that I was getting a very uniquely, a unique experience as a Black American. Like I saw other Black people in France mm-hmm. who were not being treated the same way I was. And I saw that the French did not consider me as with them, right? Like I was a different subset. Like people would say things about Black people or Africans. And I'd be like, yo, dude, I'm, I'm, right, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm right here. They'd be like, oh, dear, don't be silly. You're not an immigrant. You're an expat. <laughs> You know what? I, I've always that language is always crazy because expats are just immigrants. Like it's, it, it, but it's it's just how you phrase it. It's how people phrase it. But it, yeah. uh, I mean, one is I mean, one the connotations that one group is taking something from the country as opposed to the other group is giving something to the country. Mm-hmm. Right? So the tax are seen as wealthy and not necessarily draining the system. But I was definitely there taking all the things I could from. <laughs> And so it was a great experience. I think you also realize how American you are to some degree as well. Like you have a lot in common with your white American folks, right? In a way that you've never really appreciated, right? Like you're in a neighborhood and as Americans being Americans, like you're visiting this beautiful neighborhood and your first thought is, I wonder how much it costs to live here. Like, <laughs> ask like, so or your counterpart, your white American counterpart was like, so how much does an apartment cost in this area? And the French person was like, oh my God, these things, are these things we do not ask, right? <laughs> These are things that are very American, right? You think of, think about the world. And so you, you realize in some ways your connection to the larger black diaspora, but you also recognize that you're in many ways, like not only are you a part of American culture, but you've shaped American culture. Mm-hmm. American culture is very black, right? Um, and so it was a wonderful experience. I also came out in Paris, right? So I was kind of a closeted gay guy uh, all through college, my first few years of college. And that means I didn't focus on my social life. I focused on school, right? Yeah. I, days all through college right i was in the books and i had um i came out in paris and came back to dc senior year i was like i have to get back to paris like it was so fun so freeing and I remember asking my advisor how did i do that she's like you can always apply for a full bright this random scholarship that i knew nothing about fellowship ended up going back to paris and studying french immigration policy and xenophobia towards ethnic minorities in french suburbs right so how like france's take on france did not have a sense of multiculturalism as something that exists in french culture as a french culture um whatever multicultural you're doing, I don't know what it is, but it ain't French, right? Um, and so it's just a very interesting way of studying abroad and living abroad. And, you know, I made, I have really good friends in France. I have really good relationships from there. I've gone back to France before. Um, I've spent a semester there teaching at my grad school. I'm on the board of my grad school. I'm going back in the fall for sabbatical. Yeah. Uh, so it was a wonderful experience as well and something that everyone should try to do if they can. Yeah, I haven't I haven't been to France yet, um, but I, it's a place I... In the world? Uh, what did you say? Say it again. It's right there. What do you mean? You yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> My, um, I yeah, I really want to go to Bims. It looks lush. I want to go to the south of France as well. That also looks lush. Um, but it's, we'll be in France in, in the fall. We'll spend the first weeks in the south and central Pays on tea before heading up to Paris. And oh, I'm jealous. Maybe oh, I, can, I can hop yeah. over. I'll send you an email. I'll be like, yo, whenever you're there, I'll come along. But yeah, I, I that sounds really. That sounds really interesting. Um, and I even think, as you were saying, 
you know, the French just, it's interesting expats and immigrants and how, how that is all viewed. And even you doing your, um, your thesis and studying about French migration and multiculturalism. I think it is really interesting in terms of how, you know, France is probably, I mean, Britain had the biggest empire, but France like had a, had a pretty sizable one. Um, and the fact that they benefited so much from immigrants, but then, and they probably need them in their country now, but that the multiculturalism, like one thing about, one thing which is good about Britain is that they sort of have embraced multiculturalism, even though there are flaws to it. Like they definitely have embraced it. Um, and I think that's probably made the country quite better in general, but it is interesting how the French have just, uh, the French have taken a much different approach yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, you know, when we're talking about, and they're all colonizers, right? And so I try to put in different colonizers. They're all problematic in, in the worst way possible. So, I mean, and I've always found it interesting that, well, that's another conversation for another day. Like, when you talk about <laughs> colonizers and their different approaches to colonization, and some are more brutal than others. They've all, they're all horribly brutal and have done absolutely horrible things. And if you sit back and think about colonialism, how it's worked out, the, the way we've wrapped our head around such a perverse system is another conversation for another day. There's a lot of Stockholm syndrome happening there. But I do think there is very much so a difference in how the colonial approaches, right? I think the, we say all the time within the international affairs world that British colonialism was you can act however you like as long as you think the same. Mm-hmm. So your outward appearance was of absolutely no importance. So when they went to places like the good Jesuit Catholics, like... How you behave, you can keep your religion, you can keep your culture, you can keep your dress, but there's a British way of thinking about things that you must maintain, right? And the French where you can think however you like, as long as you act the same, right? Um, and so the decrivé, like how you think in your house and what you do in your house is your business. But when you show up on the street, there's a way to look, there's a way to act, there's a way to, to, to appear, right? Mm. And I think those are very different colonial approaches, which is played out within the culture itself, the cultures themselves. I think what's interesting about French culture is that France is very much so outwardly anti-multiculturalism, but I can't think of any other culture that's more fusion than French culture. Yeah, right? like, I mean, look at their football France, team. <laughs> France has benefited more from all of its col- colonies, like culturally. Like there was a, even a wonderful article, once again, I'm from New Orleans, this wonderful article on all of the various African cooks, African Caribbean chefs who come in New Orleans and set up shop. And they were talking about how uh, there's this belief that New Orleans is a French city from a cultural perspective when in actuality it's an african city where mm. just all the dishes are in french <laughs> right like <laughs> all these dishes are african dishes etouffee this jambalaya that but it's they're all african dishes with french names and i think that's the same in french culture like all these things that are french things they're actually products of their colonies right yeah. like everything sugar culture and patisserie culture those all comes from that comes from they're colonizing the, the, the sugar creating world right uh, and chocolate and all those things came from outside of the country itself. So I think that their their French culture has been so shaped by you know their colonies that their their multiculturalism is reflected in their pop, their culture itself. Whereas England, I'm not quite you know I don't understand the Brits at all. I don't even try to pretend. <laughs> I can only I can only wrap my head around one colonizer at a time. But I think that the you know the the like the Brits are painfully proud of the fact that they don't have <laughs> national cuisine. Right? It's like, but we have a good curry. Yeah. Right, like which is not even ours, <laughs> right? Like, um, so it's just very different approaches uh, <laughs> to thinking about the world, all perverse and problematic. So I try not to romanticize it too much. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it's um, it is quite funny in terms of yeah, because England, because yeah, when you think of a chicken tikka, well, to be fair, it's not even like a curry isn't even, it's not even sort of traditionally Indian. It's sort of, it's, 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 it was made by an Indian man in England, so it's it's a bit like okay. But there are loads of foods here. There's loads of culture and influence. Like you walk through London, you, you know, you see so much diversity. Um, and I'm sure it's probably the same for France. So it's yeah. it's interesting. We're constantly thinking about how cities like London, cities like Paris, like New York, like San Francisco, they actually have more in common with each other than they do with the other cities within the country themselves. It's like these, these world-class cities all have a way of living and existing. Yeah that are more a reflection of a shared culture across world-class cities than they are a reflection of the cities that they're in. Like, for example, New York has more in common with Paris than it does with Birmingham. <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> New York has more in common with, with, with Paris than it does with, you know, some random than Albany. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that there's a multiculturalism or a way of living across major areas that very often within European cities they pick their most cosmopolitan place as a standard bearer for what the culture is. And, you know, we don't get to do that in the States. Like, no one will ever say, oh, New York is the ultimate American city, although it is. People always pull New York outside of the States. Oh, but New York is different, right? (laughs) Oh, but Paris is different. It is quite different, but no one would ever say that, right? We don't have to do that with European cultures, so... Um, so I'd love to, I'd love to sort of pivot and, um, like you're, you're doing quite interesting work, um, in terms of working with philanthropists and doing philanthropic, I'm glad I got that word, right? (laughs) Doing philanthropic um, activities with them. Um, and so I guess, could you just tell me a little bit about your job in which you do? Yeah, totally. And so I work, uh, Freebridge Bank Group is a nonprofit consulting group. Uh, so we work with nonprofits, foundations. Philanthropic advisors in our work is as consultants to create a more equitable and just world um, by supporting organizations that are driving that work, both in the United States and abroad. We have offices in New York. I work in our office in San Francisco. I mean, offices in Boston, but we also have offices in Mumbai and Singapore and uh, Johannesburg. And so within the organization, I lead our work in equitable philanthropy. And so I joke all the time that that means that work is to um, make sure and leading equitable philanthropy, my job is to make sure it's not an oxymoron. Right. That hey, I was about to say, it sounds kind of contradictory. <laughs> yeah, in a work that's equitable in a way that, you know, uh, giving away money in ways that don't necessarily recreate broken systems that allow people to amass a lot of money. Mm. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, here's about systems change, about reinventing and reimagining the world and how it works and really empowering those that have very often been marginalized by the systems of power as they exist now. Um, you know, I find the work very freeing and gratifying. I know that a lot of people struggle with how do you work in philanthropy and, 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 you know, cause you're working with people that are in many ways the, the ultimate beneficiaries of a broken capitalist system. Mm. But for me, I think of philanthropy as being a lot broader than the folks that are traditionally labeled philanthropists, right? So I don't think of philanthropy as simply pale, male, and stale. Um, I come from a community of folks that have always been extremely philanthropic and just genuine giving of black and brown folks in America give away a larger percentage of their income uh, to those that are less fortunate than actually billionaires in this country, right? Uh, so there's a giving culture, philanthropic culture as well. And also for me, this is all about um, social change, uh, funding social change, funding movements, funding leaders who are doing the work. And money's green, right? Like how do you take it and, and use it in a way that, that makes yeah. sense? Uh, American money's green, that is. 
Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I use the um, use in a way that kind of supports community upliftment and also from an American perspective, like how you create new stories that are about equity. Yeah. Uh, so that's my work in a nutshell. It's wonderful work. I get to work with leaders across the field. I have a wonderful broad, uh, podcast, Dreaming in Color, where I interview leaders across uh, the social sector and get them to talk about black and brown leaders and have them talk about what's the world that they imagine what that would look like. And this is where being American is absolutely wonderful as well. America is a country of narratives, right? It's a country where basically people tell new narratives uh, about themselves, about the country, and people live into those narratives, right? Um, And so I get to help tell those new narratives. I get to help create new narratives. There's nothing. America is so wonderful in that literally if you tell a story enough, it'll become true. Um, Here I am like, Wealthy black guy living in California who's a descendant of enslaved people, right? That's America, right? Like literally my people, there was a, a, a meme that came across the other day. A friend sent it to me, a cautioning black Americans. There's this whole thing about the, the old money aesthetic. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the person was like, uh, let's not forget we were old, we were the money. <laughs> we made the old money. Careful <laughs> what aesthetic you like. What we were we were literally we were considered currency, right? So you can only you can only integrate to so many narratives naturally. Um, and so, but that's my work, and I get to work with a lot of cool folks doing great um, job, uh, great activities across the country, across the world to support really thoughtful leaders reimagining the world and creating more equitable systems. Yeah. That sounds really interesting because I think being able to have some of the wealthiest people in the world, like putting resources into nonprofits and making and creating social change, because as much as we would love the government to be able to just keep printing money and put it into social services, you know, it isn't, I mean, you can't just keep printing money, you know, (laughs) we've got inflation now, but (laughs) I think that it's really good to be able to pull in all the resources. You know, we can also be using governments, but let's also use the people that have amassed this wealth um, yeah. to be making the world better. Well, that's another um, space in which the American model is very different. Um, I think that you guys in Europe um, actually has uh, just more, you have more government, right? So government has a, a more um, important role in social systems and supporting uh, social structures, and we don't have that same approach here in the states. And so, the nonprofit sector has always existed within the states to kind of pick up the slack where the government leaves work behind. Nonprofit sector is not a replacement for government, right? Like no. the government is scalar when it comes to this and this uh, marginalized groups, disenfranchised groups. Um, but the nonprofit sector in the states has a very important role of kind of creating new programs, catalyzing new programs, incubating new programs. That government can pick up and scale. Um, and so that's a very important role for government and philanthropy the same. Like we have a American tax code system where people are allowed to hold on to large amounts of money in a way that you can't in Europe. Like I mean, the French system, like the one well, enough. I mean, the the, the, Amer- the world's wealthiest person is not French. Uh, but <laughs> historically speaking, the, the tax code, the way it works, like you're punished for amassing mm-hmm. large amounts of money within a socialist system or more um socialist democracies and i use the term safely and broadly um and so i think that, that we didn't have we didn't have that in the states and so there was always this assumption that very very wealthy people would be responsible for supporting the regions in which they live right like yeah. the, the rock not only be rockefellers but they would also create parks and 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 and, and stadiums and and opera houses and schools and universities right and so there's always been that expectation with an american model 
I think we're trying to figure out within the country itself, like one, how much of that should still be in the hands of the usual gatekeepers and power holders from a financial perspective and where that should be more equally distributed across the country and those that are in uh, those spaces that make the most sense. I think also it has a lot to do with the fact that our country is changing um, demographically as well, right? Like when you had a majority white country, it made more sense. I don't know if it ever made sense, but it made more sense for a small white minority to be making the decisions for that large population. But now as we have more black and brown people and larger uh, numbers within a country itself, we have to figure out what's representational leadership around that. And in a way that that wealth gap is not also a racial gap. Yeah, I think because we I think that definitely is some correlation between the wealth gap and the racial gap as well. Um, obviously, we do have black billionaires out there and, you know, there are a lot of black people that are doing well. But I think you usually find the people that are doing the mean and no jobs are sort of black and brown people, immigrants that have just came to the country. Um, and, you know, I mean, we need everybody in society, but I think you can have government. Governments can play such a big role in keeping some people down, but propping others up. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. And I think I don't I don't know whether I don't know which I don't know which systems I prefer. Um, I like I mean, I like how I like how the UK does we have our NHS and I like governments being involved, but I think with governments, it's hard because they always have an agenda in terms of like, I need to win an election. So I need to do things that's going to win me in an election. I'm not thinking about how can I create a system, which even if I do leave, it can be picked up and we can continue and it can, it can like, because nothing, nothing is short term. Like everything we want to help and improve in the world is, it's going to take time. It's going to take resources. It's going to take grit and will. Um, But the systems aren't built to allow governments to do it. Well, Tina, I think it's safe to say that none of the systems are working, right? So it's it's unfortunate we have to choose between a whole bunch of broken systems. I think there is, I think what's interesting about the American model is that it does, in theory, leave more space for community development or kind of more of a community level change effort. And we need that within the States. America is a vast country. People live extremely differently. What works in New York may not work in California. It's not going to work in New Orleans or Chicago. And the vastness of America is always like, Jarring for me, someone who lives here, right? That I mm. have to sit on a plane for six hours to go to a client meeting in my own country, <laughs> right? Um, or the number of time zones I have to cross to arrange calls within my own country. Yeah, right? you guys have uh, so many different time zones. Never understood. We're, that. we're a huge country, and I think that people don't recognize as well. Like we're a huge country, and and culturally, we're very different. Mm. Right, we have very different starting points across the country. To grow up in a region like New Orleans, which is a southern region, but a southern region with French. And Spanish ancestry, the cultural values and norms are very different. They're very different from New York, which is, you know, originally colonized by the Dutch, very different from uh, Boston, colonized by British Puritans, uh, or, you know, or New Haven, colonized by the Quakers. Like, so these cities have very, very different ways of uh, living and thinking. And so there's a common thread that we, we try to make. We try to tell a story that's inclusive enough of all America and thank Hollywood for that. But that doesn't always work, right? And so how do we have areas that are more regionally run, regionally focused? But what's the system that kind of joins it all together? The European system is really interesting. And I, I can speak more from a, the French system than the British system, because I still don't understand how you guys still live in my Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like to hear about the French system. <laughs> but, you know, within the French system, there was a minarchy. There was a close group of people that you could only be a part of unless you married into or were born into, mm. right? And so this idea of a close culture you know, it made complete sense. So when the French overthrew the aristocratic system, they developed a democratic approach where, you know, we were all equal and it took a lot of work. They overthrew the 
they overdrew the monarch. They also overdrew the church because you had to, right? They were hand in hand. Like the oldest child became an aristocrat and the, the second youngest child became a priest, right? They were, yeah. they were working. <laughs> Interesting enough, in the United States, we don't necessarily, we didn't have that same monarchical system within the states itself. So we still, to some degree, had an aristocracy, financial aristocracy, but there was always this belief that it was open, right? That everyone could be a part of it, although that's not necessarily true. And so, whereas in France, the idea of fighting to remove a group became very central to, you know, the culture of itself. In the United States, interestingly enough, Americans fight, some Americans, not all of them, many Americans fight to preserve our system mm-hmm. and hope that one day they will be a member of that group. Right. And so you'll have like literally people, poor people, poor white people fighting to preserve uh, Republican values, whatever the hell that means. And uh, like these these oppressive capitalist systems, because there's a hope that one day. Yeah, I have my American dream. Right. Uh, And so very, you know, you'll have the the Joe the Plumber conversation. Barack Obama many years ago, he was on the campaign trail. I was confronted by Joe the Plumber. A guy who said, you know, Obama, hey, you want to raise our taxes? And Obama's like, no, 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 I want to raise taxes on people making over $150,000 a year. And, Joe the, and he asked Joe Palmer, how much money do you make? And Joe Palmer, first of all, lied and said he made $70,000. Truth was, he made only thirty dollars or $40,000. And he's like, well, this won't impact you. This people making double what you make. And Joe Palmer looked at him with a straight face and said, well, what if I buy my company and start making that money? And America being America, Barack Obama couldn't say, Joe, you will never buy your company. Yeah. You will never buy $50,000. In fact, statistically speaking, your kids will probably never make it. You can't say that, right? You have to let Joe hold on to his 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 musings, right? And as a result, Joe Palmer ended up voting for whoever the Republican was voting at the time because he was afraid of taxes. And it's like, and so that's where like the America has this very weird kind of appreciation of a closed system of wealth uh, in the hopes that there'll be the folks will be members of that group and get to have that power that's not true. Yeah, it's it's just it's just like how and you know what, as much as I'm not a fan of Trump, I do have to give him some props for how he's able to generate his base and his following his point because he made everybody that voted for him feel like they could be him or like they could be a part of his group or, you know, I can be rich one day and, you know, I can try and take down the establishment, even though he is so a part of the establishment. Like he convinced everybody that he was not a part of the establishment. I give Trump Trump absolutely no praise. He's an absolute nightmare. Uh, I think that he took advantage of existing American myths and narratives. So he's an expert manipulator, right? Right. Um, And I don't give people props for that. I think there's this wonderful French concept um, called the jeu de miroir. The mirror move and it's the belief that you attribute to your enemy. You attribute to your enemy the things that you hate the most about yourself, right? And I think that Trump is a master maneuver of that. In French culture, you see it all the time, right? The French are always quick to talk about American materialism, American violence, and American sexuality. It's like France, I, I remember being in grad school and having a professor talking about American materialism. Like, I just walked past Cartier, Yves Saint Laurent, and Hermes to get to this class. You want to lecture me about American materialism? I'm <laughs> down, right? Like, I'm fine with that. I think within white American culture, you see it, what white Americans, Trump supporters attribute to immigrants, attribute to black people is the things that they hate the most about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Trump came out the gate calling Mexican immigrants predators, right? Um, lazy predators, right? He was talking about himself, right? This is, it was easier to attribute that to another yeah. group. Yeah. Own self. Um, and so I think that you see a lot of that mirror move, a lot of that projecting in American culture. It's a lot easier to say that this is a problem because of immigrants coming over. This is a problem because like, the way that white Americans in the South have this 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 narrative about black Americans being lazy. 
These are literally the people that they stole from Africa to work their plantation. <laughs> Far from lazy. Far from it. <laughs> Wait, what? Right? Like, um, not not hardworking. Okay, what? Right? <laughs> so I think that you have to be thoughtful about, careful about how those various, very often those narratives become a projection. Like uh, I, 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 all of America's social issues could be solved with a really good uh, community and army of social workers. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know what? I've, I've heard even people say that about like in relationships that like if you're usually mad at your partner, like or like they're not doing something that you'd like, is sometimes usually something you're more thinking about. Oh no, I don't do this, but because they don't do it, I'm mad at them. But really, like, just look back at your own behavior and figure out what you're annoyed about because that's usually 100%. what's annoying you. 100%. I think it's that within relationships. I think I'll see it within parents and children, right? I think that parents are most annoyed by those things they see in their kids that they hate in themselves, right? It's like, oh my God, he got that from me. I hate that trait in myself. <laughs> <laughs> he's so headstrong, so bossy. It's like, oh, where did he get that? Oh, he got that from me. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he's been so, watching me the whole time. <laughs> got it honest, completely honest. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask in terms of working with in philanthropy, I said that so mm-hmm. wrong. Um, is there any sort of contradictions in philanthropy and racial equity? And I think some people might be thinking, why are millionaires sort of wanting to give to causes and stuff like that? Like, what are them real motivations? You know, some people might be thinking, oh, it's just sort of for clout. Um, but you're working yeah. with these people. So I'm sure you you get a bit more of the real side of them than anything. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think there definitely are people who give as a way of just flexing and, and, mm. and demonstrating wealth, uh, who don't give in a way that's genuine and sincere. Um, and those exist in all places, right? In all spaces. I mean, I would like to think that the people that we work with are definitely very committed to social change and creating um, a stronger and more thoughtful society and more thoughtful country itself. I think there's been a real shift in many ways in how people think about philanthropy in general over the past 10 years or so. And I think that when I started this work maybe 10 years ago, you know, you amass a billion of dollars and, and giving away a portion of it becomes a way of almost like optically showing your wealth and your prestige, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, my foundation over here, right? Um, it becomes almost like a, a, a moniker of your wealth. Um, and I think interestingly enough, and, and, and also in that perspective as well, you're having amassed a billion dollars was seen as proof of how well you can give away a billion dollars with transferable skills, right? Like I've amassed a billion dollars. I'm going to teach others how they can be wealthy and successful. Right. I think where the shift now is that ultimately, I think that many people giving away lots of money recognize that they're in amassing a billion dollars. They've harmed the world. Mm. It's hard to amass that much without doing harm to the world. Right. Um, And how do you, And so, I mean, and so how do you use the money that you've amassed to repair the harm that you created in amassing it, right? And that's kind of this idea of more of a reparative approach to philanthropy. It's very different. And when you come into that, not necessarily seeing yourself as the person with the answers, but only the person with the money, right? Um, Or not necessarily seeing, and this is very, you know, it goes very counter in many ways. Uh, some of the the founding principles of our country that we don't talk about, the, the Puritan work ethic, that basically wealth was a product of your worth. <laughs> like wealthy people were going to heaven. Like wealth was in, 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 the, in the Protestant world, 
right? What people being wealthy <clears throat> was a sign that they were going to heaven. Yeah. I didn't right? know that. It's a very, and so wealth was right. Right. It was, it was a sign that you were chosen by God. Right. Which is so unchristian, right? Like the lack of just a little bit. God, God only loves rich people. My minister was talking about, you know, the Bible says very clearly it's, it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a, it's rich easier for a to get to the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to heaven. I grew up learning that. And so I got them. billionaires like, you realize you're not going to heaven. Like, <laughs> just because you're rich, you ain't going. <laughs> just because you're rich, right? So I think that there's been, in many ways, a shift in how we think about not only the value of wealthy people in the sense of like your wealth is a product of hard work and all those things. Like in many ways, you know, pulling apart the myth of American exceptionalism and hard work and perhaps some work ethic and all those things, but also understanding how your your wealth is actually the product of a broken system um, and a, a, a misuse of power to some degree, intentionally or not. Uh, and how to use your funds to create a more equitable and just society, recognizing that your wealth is of no worth if the country's not no longer existing. Yeah. <laughs> right? If no one can buy your products or buy your services because okay. everyone is, you know, too broke, yeah. too poor, too, too something. Exactly. And so I think that people are really trying to rethink how to structure the system in a way that, you know, allows for clearly capitalistic endeavors. I mean, no one's trying to completely overhaul capitalism. Good luck with that. But because also because socialism and communism don't work for people of color either, just for the record. But but also, I mean, how do you do so in a way that allows more people to be brought into the big tent of successful and actually allows success to be defined differently? Yeah. And I think just like when we're getting everybody thriving, like the whole like every everything gets propped up, doesn't it? Like if if everybody's able to go and feed their families and, you know, go and then, you know, you can feed your families, you can maybe then be like, okay, what do I want to do in my life? How can I get more money? And then like everyone is sort of going to be benefiting from the flow of the system and everyone, you know, being happy and healthy. And 100 percent. I think it's a question of both everyone benefiting from the system to some degree, but also what a more wonderful and beautiful system is when everyone can contribute to it. Mm. Um, can you imagine how absolutely boring and uninteresting America would be? America would be if black and brown people weren't here, right? I mean, no shade Australia, but the world doesn't need another one of those, right? <laughs> so I think that there is, you know, I think there's something to be said about how do we acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of black and brown genius that shapes this country and makes it a wonderful place. How do we elevate that genius and allow that genius to shine? Right. I think it's not just a question of people benefiting from it, but we all benefit from an America where there are more black and brown people in leadership roles and in and entertainment roles and wealth roles as cultural, you know, gatekeepers, as cultural influencers. It's just a more, more interesting, beautiful place to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um otherwise. And so how do we allow that to be demonstrated and showcased as well? Yeah, definitely. And as you were, and as you were saying, we've got a demographic that is changing um, as well. So, like, we need to be representing. They need to be representing 100%. those people. Yeah, people of color are dope as hell. <laughs> no, like, what is, no lies about it. There's no right. Like, so definitely yeah i mean and we've got leaders like um i say we i mean you guys i mean t- no i'm not gonna say about the uk um i mean we've got richie sunak but uh that's a class and wealth thing that's i mean you know this is the oh goodness yeah there's like yeah exactly <laughs> What's going on? you guys have got someone like aoc who who you know was working as a bar as a bar woman as a you know a bar staff 
and now she's you yeah. know one of the most famous politicians in the world and she sort of stays yeah. authentic to who she is and is standing yeah. up for well, the I also worked on that AOC was working as a barman or a bar person I don't know how it is now but um she was also extremely well educated right? she mm, didn't yeah. roll out from middle school and start working as a bartender right and then go into congress right she's well educated I've done all the schooling and all the things uh, and I think you see that across the country it's one of, actually one of the wonderful things I love about my podcast is that I get to talk with these people who are just out the gate, like just absolutely wonderfully brilliant people. And it gives me so much hope for the world because like the world's an absolute mess right now, but we have ridiculously brilliant and talented people who are working to fix it. Um, and giving those folks a space to shine, giving those space and those folks is this wonderful uh, quote um, by um, Angel Kilo Williams, an American thinker, if you were a black American thinker, and she talks about how love is space. Right. How do we how do we show love by giving people space to shine, space to be? Um, and, you know, I think that when you are able to showcase black and brown um, excellence, as we say in the States, you actually shine a light on white mediocrity. Like AOC is absolutely brilliant and she, it shines, but also shows how unbrilliant her white colleagues are. Mm. <laughs> right? uh, that's worth calling out as well. Right. People who are in positions of power who are not that smart at all. They're just privileged. Um, and so how do you actually allow folks who have the talent, have the skills to rise into positions of power and to act as leaders uh, and leverage that power in a way that shapes the world differently for those yeah. that are coming behind? At the end of the day, we want the best people and like the most passionate people in those jobs. You know what I mean? Black, brown, yeah. white, whatever you are, we just want the, we don't want you, we don't want you to be there because of privilege, because because then as well, you're not doing the job. Like you're not doing stuff exactly. that's gonna actually help everyone. Yeah, totally. I think that you want different people in a position. I think it's also we need we need a team of people with different ways of thinking. Mm. Um, the world is a mess right now. And smart white men have had their chance for the past 300 years to shape it in a way that makes sense. And it, it's not working. We're not gonna smart white boy our way out of the world right now. We need <laughs> Black people with some smart women, some like we need some other smart people to be thinking through because clearly the, the way that exists now ain't working. Yeah. yeah. Right. We so need, that we need a broader team of folks with some different ways of thinking and different ways of acting as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, those are the best ways. Um, I just wanted to ask you two more questions. Um, in terms of, of being a leader, um, especially being a black leader that is also gay as well, like how do you how do you handle being that? How do you handle being a leader? Yeah, you know, funny enough, I've never really, I mean, once again, I met my grandmother's quote of like God giving us all free will and making us all very different. My grandmother always said, if God wants us to be the same, would have made us all the same, but it made us all very different for a reason. Um, and so for me, you know, my, what what I am is what I am. Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know any differently, right? <laughs> so uh, it's very normal for me. I think that with all of my attributes, be it Black, be it gay, be it French speaking, be it from New Orleans, you know, all those things. They give me a source of wisdom to pull from and a community to lean on. Uh, so they've all been complete assets and attributes to me. I share this story all the time. I'll share it with you quickly. Um, so I joke that I've had several coming outs to my family when I came home from college freshman year. I went to Howard. It was like, you know, very like hippy dippy, super smart black kids. So they, they were all getting on pork and meat and all these things. So I, you know, I came from New Orleans. I went to Howard. I came back freshman year and I give, I given up meat. Um, it, it was short lived. Don't worry. <laughs> I told my mom that I'd given up meat at home for Christmas and she cried. Like, you were like, okay. 
Right. I kept I kept passing out because I was eating like I grew up in like meat starch vegetable home. I didn't realize you couldn't just eat starch vegetable and be vegetarian. You would die. Yeah. <laughs> so, just eat meat until the summer. When you come back, we'll figure out your diet routine and you can go vegetarian. But just eat meat for now, right? And I started eating meat again, never stopped. I went off to school in Paris my junior year abroad. Um, I came out to myself, but more importantly, I had a crisis of faith. Right? I didn't. I wasn't sure that God existed anymore. That the God that this was one I was interested in. And I came home to New Orleans and I told my mom this time, I was like, I don't believe in, I don't think I believe in God anymore. My mother said, without skipping a beat, that's okay. God still believes in you. Right. Um, crisis of faith or all smart people have crisis of faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came home and for my first year of grad school in Paris, and I was living with my boyfriend at the time. I wasn't out to my family and he kept calling us before cell phones. I'm old. He kept calling the house. Um, and my mother was like, Oh, this Stefan keeps calling. Like, is he your roommate or is he your boyfriend? Like, are you gay? Right. And I was like, I'm gay. And it's my boyfriend. I'm not too much. My mother responded, You're not the only one, completely unfazed. Fair so enough, many years ago, fair enough. all the things I've ever shared with you, my being, not my giving up meat was the only thing that ever got a visceral response. So, <laughs> I mean, without an ounce of uh irony, well, you know. Your father and I have only ever wanted for you to be happy. And um, I just saw you. I just could understand why you would give up eating meat. Like, that just seemed like a lifestyle choice. I just saw no path to happiness with that lifestyle choice. And that made me sad for you. The other things, I mean, giving up God, giving up, yeah, I'm good going to <laughs> I know lots of happy people who are gay or who are godless, right? But the giving up meat, like, why would you do that to yourself, right? And so that's like my family. Like, it's a very different, like, a very progressive, thoughtful family. Uh, and I always had kind of working models of what it means to be gay and be black and successful. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so that's where one where I didn't necessarily have the same societal stereotypes around the issues. And I had my own, which were really powerful and important ones. So that was, you know, so that for me, is always, I've always thought, I've always thought of my games as a huge asset more than yeah. anything. Not- nice. That is, that is a funny story. The only, the only actually cried is you didn't see happiness with me. I love that. That's that that just sort of speaks like just sort of a black 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 family like you're just like no me are you okay? Why would you choose that lifestyle for yourself? Like what in the world? So yeah. But yeah, but I, I mean, it's also glad that your mom and your family were were supportive of you, um, yeah. and that you saw. And I think what what you said, which is should be highlighted, is that you saw black gay successful leaders, um, and it wasn't it wasn't faith because you're like they're doing it, and I've got all the tools to do it, and I've seen them do it, so I can do it. Or I, and I can do it better or I can do it differently to them and just do it myself. I also have, I mean, I'll talk about it as well as often, but my, my great grandfather. So my grandmother's father was gay as well. So he divorced mm-hmm. his wife in the thirties and lived with his partner in New Orleans in the French quarter um, as gay couples at the time. And so there was already a working model of a successful gay professional person in yeah. my family. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I think that, you know, when you've seen others doing it, it's been normalized. Um, you normalize it as well and you don't think of it as an issue. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, so Darren, I've loved this whole conversation that we've had. Um, and I just wanted to ask you one final question, um, which I always ask all my guests is say, if there's a young black boy listening to this podcast, how can something that, you know, help them with an understanding of themselves? Interesting. You know, I, I, it's a great question. Um, and I think that one of the biggest I go back to my grandmother's quote about uh, living your life as beautifully as possible for a reason. I think that instilled in me at a very early age that I was not a mistake. Everything that I was was on purpose and beautiful in its own right, rightful way. And my job was to make beauty out of it. 
Um, and so I think that Black Americans, particularly in the South, particularly those of us who grew up in Black liberation theology, we truly believe um, that there's a little bit of divinity in all of us, right? There's a little bit of God in all of us, right? Um, and so for that young Black boy listening, I encourage them to find that God within them uh, and showcase that God in a way that's beautiful and meaningful. Uh, and that brings them some degree of joy and I encourage them to live their life in a way that someone coming after them can see them as a model. Even as at a young, whatever young age, right? There's always someone looking at you. Um, no matter how young you are, there's always folks looking up to you and seeing how you're behaving, seeing how you're interacting, seeing how you're taking up space in the world. Um, and so I encourage folks to find the divinity within, let the divinity shine. There's a little bit of God in all of us and some of us is a whole lot of God. Some of us a little bit. Some of us a little, little bit. <laughs> a whole lot of God, right? How do you let the divinity shine and how do you live your life in a way that brings you some degree of happiness, knowing that God wants you to be happy. He created this world for you to be happy, right? So how do you let that happiness shine and doing so uh, create space for others to live and seeing you as a normal path as well? No, brilliant, brilliant, Darren. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Been uh, fun. It has been fun, definitely. Hopefully we can do it again. Paul, when I'm in Paris, you got to come over and visit. Yeah, 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 of course. And I, I mean, I always want to go to San Francisco at some point. My brother supports, uh, uh, what's it called, Golden State. So I'm sure if I was like, bro. <laughs> Listen, I am always recruiting for California. California is a wonderful place. We're always recruiting say at our tax base. So yes, please come. It's lovely yeah. out here. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So guys, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed talking to Darren and I think he just brings a wealth of experience and knowledge um, about society, about philanthropy. And, you know, there's so many more projects that he's worked on that we didn't even get to talk about. So, you know, maybe there'll be a second one, you know, if... uh, when I become a, a leader um, in society, I don't know if I already am one technically, um, I'd love to feature on his podcast. So Dreaming in Colour, go and listen to his podcast, Dreaming in Colour, and go and check him out, LinkedIn, um, Instagram. I'm going to put all his socials into the show notes. You can go and check that out. And, you know, go and check out my website too, because I always put extra resources on there, little videos and stuff like that and little links. So go and check that out because it's great. And yeah. I think that's it guys I generally think that's it I don't think I have much more to keep you here for um, so all I'm going to say is that thank you very much for listening please go and engage with the episode leave five stars on Spotify or go and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts leave a re- review leave a five star because you know we all love five stars right everyone loves getting stars so why not put five <laughs> but yeah I really thank you guys for listening I really hope you enjoyed this episode uh, get into contact with me speak at blackandraw.co.uk is my email at blackandraw and everything and yeah I think that's pretty much it guys so I hope you have a good day and we will talk soon <laughs> <laughs>